Candace Long with Lessons in the Latter Days, offering biblical commentary to make sense of the times that we're living in. Today is part two of Climate Change, the Final Kingdom. I make no claims of being an expert on the environment or the scientific data surrounding this issue. My calling is to pinpoint and chronicle the unfolding of events that belong to the last kingdom in power before the day of the Lord. I believe history will show that the power behind the climate change movement is the revised Roman Empire that the prophet Daniel describes as that kingdom, a global one-world government attempting to unite all nations by means of a single cause. As Daniel wrote, I suspect we will witness the rise of ten leaders representing ten geographical areas. The prophet describes this final kingdom as dreadful and terrible because its leaders will not be fully human, meaning they, or the ones driving and manipulating them, are part human and part angelic. This fulfills Jesus' words in Matthew and Luke that the coming of the Son of Man would be as it was in the days of Noah. And this is what happened then. Everyone on the planet at that time, with the exception of Noah and his family of seven, defiled their bloodline by intermarrying with descendants of the Nephilim who were born from the union of earthly women and angelic watchers. That is why God had to destroy the earth with the flood. Jesus said it would be the same way as when he comes again, and he will destroy this evil confederation of pretenders who claim the earth belongs to them. In part one, I introduced the backstory as this movement was forming in the United States. I revealed research showing that President Eisenhower witnessed firsthand negotiating with beings whose home is another planet, whose God is not the Lord. In the 1960s, our country began to be invaded and inseminated by beings who had a sinister agenda. They infiltrated the highest echelons of government, finance, and business with full permission granted by our leaders. This is all part of the classified material that remains sealed to this day, and my research shows is the primary reason President Kennedy was assassinated because he threatened to expose it. A deal with the devil was made for the United States to become the unparalleled leader of the free world, which we did. But our rise to power came at the cost of our country's soul. Today in Part 2, I want to comment on two tentacles that have dangled in front of my radar in recent days. Number one, the year that America almost lost its sovereignty. And number two, a prophetic dream which reveals the charismatic leader who will figure prominently in this movement. Let's look first at the year that we almost lost our sovereignty. Over the last several months, as this climate change agenda dominated the news cycle more and more, a memory surfaced from the fall of 2009. I had totally forgotten about it. 
I was attending the 35th annual gala for an organization I was involved with for many years, Atlanta's Women in Film and Television. Now, the key takeaway was a filmed message that was shown to the audience delivered by someone from the United Kingdom named Lord Christopher Monckton, and he had an urgent message for America. I want to read this short message to you. It's a few minutes long, but it's important you hear what Lord Monckton said. Now, keep in mind, this was delivered in October of 2009. Quote, At Copenhagen, in December, weeks away, a treaty will be signed. Your president, referring to President Obama, will sign it. Most of the third world countries will sign it because they believe they're going to get some money out of it. Most of the left wing from Europe will rubber stamp it. I have read that treaty. And what it says is this, that a world government is going to be created. Now, the word government actually appears as the first of three purposes of this new entity. The second purpose is the transfer of wealth from the countries of the West to third world countries in satisfaction of what is called climate debt. Because we've been burning carbon dioxide and they haven't, and we've been screwing up the climate. Now, we haven't been screwing up the climate, but that's the line. And the third purpose of this new government is enforcement. The communists who piled out of the Berlin Wall and into the environmental movement and took over Greenpeace so that my friends who founded it left within a year are about to impose a communist government on the world. You have a president who has very strong sympathies with that point of view. He's going to sign. He's a Nobel Peace Laureate. Of course he'll sign. And the trouble is this. If that treaty is signed, your Constitution says that treaty takes precedence over your Constitution. And because you're the biggest paying country, they're not going to let you out. Unless you stop it, your president will sign your freedom, your democracy, and your prosperity away forever. And neither you or any subsequent government that you may elect would have any power whatsoever to take it back again. That is how serious it is. I have read the treaty, and they are going to do this whether you like it or not. But I think it is here, in your great nation, that perhaps in the eleventh hour, at the fifty-ninth minute, you will rise up and you will stop your president from that dreadful treaty. I end by saying the words that Winston Churchill addressed to your president in the darkest hour before the dawn of freedom in the Second World War. He quoted from your great poet Longfellow, Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity with all its fears with all hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate, unquote. There are several important points I want to comment on in this speech. As I read it now, 13 years later, I'm amazed, first of all, that this address was actually presented at our television and film gala. For you know how liberal the entertainment industry has become, 
and how popular President Obama became with the industry during his eight-year tenure. I did some online research to see what happened with this treaty proposal back in 2009, and thankfully, by God's grace, the treaty did not pass. But I want you to see that everything proposed is happening now before our eyes 13 years later. Here are seven key points. Point number one, if you search the UN's 2009 Climate Summit in Copenhagen, you will find that the initiative was brought forward by the United Nations, where the industrialized world agreed to provide international financial support to help less developed countries adapt to climate change. Point number two, Lord Moncton mentioned three key phrases for us to remember. Number one, this is a government that is forming. Number two, it involves a transfer of wealth from rich countries to poor ones. And number three, it will be mandated. Point number three, so how much are we talking about here? Now, during the 2009 summit, wealthy nations pledged to direct $100 billion a year starting in 2020. And that's why we are hearing so much about this now. Because by the year 2018, the fund totaled only around $75 billion a year in the form of loans that would have to be paid back. Now, Earth.org wrote this was unacceptable, saying it defeats the purpose. They wrote, it's not fair for some countries to be wealthy and others to be poor, unquote. Point number four, to give you an example of this way of thinking, according to the African Development Bank, Africa holds 15% of the world's population, is responsible for around 3% of CO2 emissions, and yet is currently forced to shoulder nearly 50% of the estimated global climate change adaptation costs. In a 2020 study, the researchers crunched the numbers to come up with what they call the fair share emissions of every country in the world if we were all to stay within one degree Celsius of warming. And they concluded that the total value of climate debt, or how much industrialized countries owe to the developing world, may be as high as $34 trillion. Point number five. Where do you think the United Nations is going to look for a good chunk of that money? The United States. Apparently, we are the bad guy, according to some 200-plus leaders of COP, which stands for Conference of the Parties, and they meet annually around the world at these global climate summits. Point number six. These global leaders accuse us the United States, of not only destroying lives, but destroying livelihoods. Here's what they intend to mandate. Quote, to fairly compensate these developing nations hurt by global warming and to reach a more equitable future, monetary transfers won't be enough. Countries will need global transformations, such as providing patent-free clean energy tech transfers to the developing world. It also means making borders more open, 
easing visa procedures and providing the right for climate migrants to live and work wherever they are forced to go, unquote. Point number seven, we're talking about taking money away from U.S. taxpayers through an international government mandate and giving it away to poor nations, plus give up the rights to our clean energy technology patents. Oh, and by the way, we must open our borders to whoever wants to come live here so they can do so at our expense. Now, what I just described is the collective mindset of this climate change agenda, and it could not be any less biblical. When did the Lord give the world to the United Nations to manage? In part three of this series, I'm going to present the important spiritual laws that this agenda violates. But to give you a preview, Psalm 24 tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. His ways are not the world's ways, and he blesses those who walk rightly. Our country is being led into a dangerous snare by deceived leaders who are not simply acquiescing to this agenda, they are leading it. President Biden announced just this year, saying, A new world order is coming, and the United States must now step up and lead it and unite the rest of the free world. Unquote. And what is the cost of that leadership? Billions of taxpayer dollars. When the Lord comes to you and me at the day of the Lord and asks, what have you done with what I put in your hand? What will you say? Well, I was mandated to give what I earned to countries who worship other gods. And how do you think that's going to go over? You might be asking, what can I do about this? I don't have all the answers, but I'm seeking biblical wisdom for ways that we can distance ourselves from being complicit in this agenda, and I'll share those in part four. But we need to walk very wisely right now. The second tentacle in today's episode is a prophetic dream that I had the night after hearing Lord Moncton's speech. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with my personal dream journey— After losing almost everything in 2001, the Lord began speaking to me in 2002 through prophetic dreams. Now, some of you may not understand this or accept that God can speak through dreams and visions today. It's okay. I didn't think so either. But after 20 years on this journey, what I have been shown in dreams has played a tremendous role in helping me discern the times that we're living in. In breaking out a prophetic dream, I go through the same four steps that Joseph went through when interpreting Pharaoh's dream in Genesis 41. Step one is writing down the dream as it unfolds, making note of whatever details I am drawn to. So here's step one from my journal dated October 24, 2009. I am an observer in this dream and am standing close to a man who is very alluring, and we are next to a body of water, like an ocean. There's a woman nearby, an older, sex-siren-type woman, who is oblivious that I am there. 
I'm not in any romantic relationship with this man. I'm more like an assistant of some sort. He whispers to me that she wants sex, so he sends me off to wait until he is finished. This man is bare-chested from the waist up, and his chest looks like he has had some sort of operation, almost like a breast reduction job. His two nipples had scars around them. They were close together, and they looked strange. The woman had two assistants with her, and she sent them off like me. So the three of us watched as the woman unrobed to go have sex with this man under the water. Suddenly, the water became so agitated that a great swell raised up over them like a giant wave. The three of us bystanders were not in danger, but we were helpless to prevent this act of seduction or to do anything but watch. And that was the dream. Step two, after praying for insight, you write down observations based on the dream. I wrote down what was going on in my life before it and anything of note that the Lord brought to mind. Again, this is from my journal. I noted I had just attended the film industry gala and listened to Lord Moncton's warning to America. Watching this dream, it was as if no one dared to stop this unholy alliance. This is what I ended up titling the dream, an unholy alliance. I remember trying to make myself wake up and go downstairs to pray. I noted the man's deformed breasts and wrote that his identity as a man was scarred from what God created him to be. The woman's nakedness was front and center. She resembled an older actress from the past, like an overweight Rita Hayworth. They had no fear of God in their uncontrollable drive to fornicate. What gripped me was my sense of helplessness. I was given no power to do anything, merely to witness what was happening. I sensed the Lord was preparing me for what is to come, seeing that this unholy alliance had already taken place or was about to. And I wrote down, When a leader sins, the earth groans, which comes from Proverbs 29. In the Bible, the sea or the ocean represents the Gentile nations the sea of humanity. The Lord prompted me to read Revelation 17, where the great harlot seduces the kings of the earth. She sits on seven hills. I noted that everyone thinks that the seven heads or hills that the harlot sits on refers to Rome, but it also could be the Levant, the land along the Mediterranean Sea and to the east of Italy. The countries that comprise the Levant are Cyprus, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, and southern Turkey. Also noting that Turkey is where all seven churches were located that Jesus addressed in the book of Revelation. I noted my sense that President Obama was the man in the dream and that he has made an unholy alliance with ISIL, which is known as the Fertile Crescent and the Cradle of Civilization. Another key observation of this dream is the date that I dreamed it, 
October 24, 2009, which was the sixth of Cheshvan. The Torah portion for that week, 13 years ago, is called Noah and covers Genesis 6 through 11, and this is extremely significant. God was highlighting his timetable on the Hebrew calendar because Cheshvan was the month when the flood began. This very passage in the Torah follows right after the rise of wickedness in the earth because of the Nephilim and covers the Lord's protective separation of Noah and his family and his decree which said, I will destroy man and beast from the face of the earth. This passage also introduces the rise of Nimrod, who was Noah's great-grandson. The Midrash records that before Nimrod, there were neither wars or reigning monarchs. Nimrod ensnared men with his words and incited them to rebel against God. His first conquest, which laid the basis for empire building, was Babel, and Nimrod was the primary force behind this rebellion. I believe the Lord was confirming my identification of Obama in the dream and his influence behind the scenes, because his birth heritage was Africa, where Nimrod's ancestry ruled. Now, time does not permit a complete breakout of this dream, but let me close by saying that if you study Barack Obama's background, his political views, and his meteoric rise to power as an international spokesman for environmental issues, I believe that you will see the parallels. He has always wanted to take America's strength and give it away to others in order to level the playing field. I believe I was shown a piece of the puzzle, namely that Obama is today's charismatic figure making alliances behind the scenes of this one-world agenda. It is likely he who is speaking through President Biden, which is why Biden said he will run for president again in 2024. He is not the one calling the shots. Obama is. And just as Nimrod ensnared the existing world through skilled oratory, in rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel, I believe history will show that the climate change agenda is the new Babel. And once again, the world is mounting a war against God, led by a charismatic descendant of Ham, as it was in the days of Noah. Next time in Part 3, I will discuss the important spiritual laws that this climate change agenda violates, why climate change became the perfect platform to implement a hidden agenda. Nothing about this movement is biblical. We are witnessing a sifting and a separation inside of every nation of the world. For every person will be forced to choose whom they serve, the global agenda of this new world order, or the Lord God, creator and sustainer of the universe. 
to learn more, you'll find this episode and the entire series at CandiceLong.com slash podcasts. In my online store, you'll find the 31-page monograph called The Final Kingdom. It's one of my most important writings and includes helpful graphics and charts, as well as links to all of my resources. I want to thank you so much for being with me today. I hope you join me again next time for Lessons in the Latter Days. God bless you.